Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Hey, welcome back everyone to another Pain Talk podcast. I'm really excited about our podcast today. Uh, I was fortunate enough to reach out to uh, Pam McLean-Vesey, who is a pharmacist working with the Academic Detailing Service in uh, Halifax. And they are a wealth of knowledge. Um, It's an amazing service. They do incredible work, uh, very, very intense work. They scan the literature looking for evidence that we can use clinically at the bedside. So even though our focus is more on the pharmacotherapy today, of course, we want to make sure that we're looking at pain in a broad context. So pharmacotherapy is only one tool that we use, and it often isn't effective by itself. We need to bring in other types of therapies, non-pharmacological therapies. So it's important that we also recognize that the management of acute pain is going to be very, very different than uh, when we look at chronic pain, even though our goals of care may be very similar. For both, we want to be able to help patients tolerate the pain enough so that they can be functional and live their life. But the mechanisms that drive acute pain are going to be very, very different than the mechanisms that drive chronic pain. So often the tools may be a little bit different. They need to be tweaked a little bit better. But in particular, uh, patients need to understand the mechanism for flare-ups that we often see with chronic pain. And these flare-ups we've discussed in previous podcasts are really complex, very individual-specific. So everybody has a different trigger. There are some commonalities around triggers and flare-ups, and that would be things like activity. So in someone who's living with chronic pain, that, uh, you know, we may be able to push patients sometimes, uh, for example, for acute pain, we can kind of push activity a bit, especially if they're working with a physiotherapist. This doesn't really work that great for someone who's living with chronic pain. This will often trigger some significant flare-ups. So our goals of care when we're managing acute pain are to help to make the pain more tolerable until tissue heals, but also reduce that risk or mitigate that risk of chronic pain. So how do we do that? Well, like we said, there's lots of different tools. Our communication strategies are so important. How we minimize fear and uncertainty, how we help patients feel confident in movement, how they can feel safe when they move. We know that one of the biggest drivers of uh, acute pain transitioning to chronic pain is actually that fear or uncertainty. So the talking points can be incredible in terms of how we help patients manage and live with their uh, acute pain. Next, we looked at interventions. Uh, how they can help, alternative therapies, how they can help, and then pharmacotherapy, which is what we want to focus on today. The importance as well around the use of pharmacotherapy, and you'll hear this come a lot into the podcast, is how we risk stratify patients. So we not only want to help prevent harms associated with the, the therapies that we choose, we want to manage risk with the patient. So that includes the risk of falling, the risk of cognitive delay, the risk of substance use disorder. So just reminding us that any acutely painful condition can lead to chronic pain. We call that process pain chronification. If we look at the International Association for the Study of Pain definition of acute pain, acute pain is the normal predicted physiological response to an adverse chemical, thermal, or mechanical stimulus. Whereas chronic pain is pain without biological value that has persisted beyond the normal tissue healing. The challenge is, is that even though that chronic pain does not serve purpose, it still is intensely disabling and impactful in terms of how it affects people's lives. So without further ado, we're going to get into the podcast with Pam. So Pam McLean-Vesey is a pharmacist, as I mentioned. 
She's been a team leader uh, at the Drug Evaluation Unit with the Nova Scotia Health Authority for about 20 years, and she'll talk a little bit about that today. So the Drug uh, Evaluation Unit specializes in providing critically appraised reports to support Atlantic provincial uh, drug plans and the Dalhousie Continuous Professional Development Academic Detailing Service. It also provides coordination function for the Atlantic Common Drug Review. Prior to working in the Drug Evaluation Unit, she also worked in various hospitals in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia in both clinical pharmacy and administrative roles. So maybe what we can do, Pam, is just start by telling us about yourself and and where you're from and how you ended up doing the work that you do. Well, I don't know how far back you want to go, but I'm from New Brunswick originally, from Florenceville, New Brunswick. But I did go to school here in Dow to get my pharmacy degree uh, many years ago. And I started in community pharmacy, but I transitioned into hospital very quickly. And it's where I really found a love for my profession because it was more clinically oriented and I got to do a lot of different projects that were really interesting. And, uh, you know, I, I worked in oncology and that sort of thing. And that was very interesting to me. And but then I moved around a lot. So I, I worked in Moncton. Fredericton, St. John, (laughs) and then ended up in Nova Scotia. But the job that I'm doing now was originally a job that was out of Drug Information Center here at NSHA. And so it was a part, kind of a part-time temporary job and I needed a job. So I took it and uh, it was to look at formularies for hospitals, actually. Mm. And then that transitioned into work with the Nova Scotia Pharmacare program. And so we are still located in the Drug Information Center at at the Halifax Infirmary. And uh, we do work for the Atlantic Common Drug Review now. So not just Nova Scotia, we work for the four Atlantic provinces and we coordinate that process with looking at new submissions for drugs. I didn't know that. So that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The ones that CADIC doesn't do. So CADIC Mm -hmm. gets most of the new entities. And as you know, they, they are a national organization. So um, so we're looking more at formulary class reviews, making sure the evidence is up to date for ones that are already listed and the criteria, do they really match what the evidence says now and that sort of thing. And, and so then we added on academic detailing when it first started because we're both funded by the same people at the Department of Health. It's called the Drug Evaluation Alliance of Nova Scotia. So we collaborate with the academic detailing program to uh, provide them with the background evidence to support their uh, initiatives. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, actually, I just saw a piece of work from Cadith as well. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but uh, the Canadian Pain Task Force released its phase two and they had the phase two uh, report and they had uh, Cadith do a survey nationally to look at resources. And so they published a really interesting document that I can forward to you and, and also anybody that's listening to the podcast, just in terms of resources uh, around chronic pain, non-pharmacological primarily. And today we're going to talk more pharmacological, but also looking at uh, psychological therapies as well as some physical therapies. So it's kind of interesting. And they did a complete review as well. So it, they look really good, actually. So I had, was able to kind of grab those things. Pam, do you want to just um, do you, do you want to just tell the listeners what what CADIF stands for? Because it's such an important agency as well. Yeah, it's the Canadian Agency for Drugs and Technologies in Health, and it's gone through various iterations over the years as well. But yeah, so they they look at all of the new drugs that are coming onto the Canadian market and look at the evidence to support those and the pharmacoeconomic analysis that are done to support and make a recommendation. And the provinces, 
then take that recommendation and depending on the circumstances, of course, um, implement the recommendation or not. It's quite an interesting process because it has changed over the years. And, and so now once the recommendation is made, generally it goes through the Pan-Canadian uh, Pharmaceutical Alliance to negotiate prices, especially if the recommendation included a caveat that the price should be reduced. Um, so there's a, it's a bit longer process, I think. And so it does take a while, but uh, in the end, probably best overall for both the clinical and economic uh, considerations. Yeah. And the, the important thing, too, is they don't just do evaluation of drugs. I mean, they look at technology. They look at, uh, you know, uh, equipment. They look not dentistry, surgical. I mean, it's crazy the breadth of, uh, of uh, area that they actually look at and uh, I think anybody, I mean, it's it's quite an interesting uh, webpage to look at. It's it's quite fascinating. I actually attended one of their conferences and I couldn't believe how many people were there. It just, it was an agency I wasn't really aware of. So I think it's important for the Canadian public to know that that resource is there, um, but also anybody in healthcare as well, having that kind of resource. And I think it's interesting too to understand the depth of information that they look at and the oh. and the real considerations. And a, you know, sometimes we only hear about the really good things about a new drug, but we tend not to hear about the potential adverse effects and harms related to it. So yes, their resources are wonderful. You know, for all any healthcare to be aware of. Yeah, um, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you tell us, um, I think you just briefly talked about some of the, the services that you provide, but uh, can you kind of elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. So um, most of the things we do would be to prepare a critically appraised report on whatever topic we're looking at, whether it's obviously mostly drugs, uh, although we have done some other things in the past. Um, and then so that is presented to expert advisory committees for the Atlantic Common Drug Review, and they then make the recommendation based on the evidence that's presented. So we are not the we are not the decision makers. We are just providing the background evidence. Um, and and we, we have learned evidence-based critique over the years, um, along with everyone else. And, um, you know, I've gone to lots of courses on it over the years and that sort of thing. So that seems to be our specialty is that we look at things in very uh, deeply and look at both the statistical and the clinical relevance of outcomes and things like that. And, and really the very same for academic detailing, because if we're going out to all the physicians in Nova Scotia to provide the background evidence, we want to make sure that it's uh, been well looked at and it's accurate. And yeah, uh, yeah so it's an amazing so. service too for mm. clinicians in, in, in the, the province for sure. How many people in your team? How many? Yeah, we have um, a three and a half pharmacists and a, you know some secretarial <laughs> support. Um, yeah, some work part time. So yeah, and but it must, uh, it must. I just can't. I mean, the the amount of work. What I always say when I uh, am able to and gratefully uh, be part of any kind of presentation like Choosing Wisely, which is where this sort of all comes from. I always find that you guys make us look so smart. I almost feel bad about it because it, it's just the amount of work that you do and how you put it into a format that, that we can understand is just phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, nice to know. Oh, yeah. No, I'm so <laughs> yeah. I, I boast about you guys all the time. 
So can any healthcare provider reach out to you for information? Well, anything that's related to the work that we do, um, even though we're physically in the Drug Information Centre, there are uh, other pharmacists, specialist drug information pharmacists that answer the questions that come in day to day. Um, So, for example, any physician can call the Regional Drug Information Service here and um, ask a question and it's a free, there's no charge or anything like that for any physician or or nurse practitioner. Um, So we don't do the day-to-day work like that. We concentrate on our our other um, clients, let's say. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so before we do, there's two cases that we're going to talk about, Pam, but uh, before we dive into those cases, maybe try and help our listeners uh, look at how the literature defines an effective or adequate response to an intervention. And primarily, I think what we're talking about is pharmacotherapy, though you do in that presentation that we did for Choosing Wisely, did talk about non-pharmacological therapies as well, but uh, didn't dive in as deep. But can you can you help us understand what an effective therapy? Because I think it's so important. Well, it it, it is a rather complicated question actually, okay. because of all the different outcomes that we have to look at, and anything like pain is is even that more complicated. I I find anyway. Yeah, because um, yeah. it's so subjective, it, right? So it's very individual yeah. specific. It's yeah. not something that you can objectively, you know, say, okay, this many centimeters, this many inches. It's a very subjective, complex experience based on right. many different factors. Yeah. Yeah. So in pain, we find there's a lot more of those, what we call continuous outcomes. So it's like on a scale of zero to 10 or zero to 100. And so in the clinical trials, they define how much of a change once you introduce a drug is required to the minimally clinically important difference is what we're looking for, that the drug actually reaches that point. So for example, in the ones uh, that we looked at for pain, most often this is defined as a one centimeter change out of 10 centimeters or a 10 centimeter change out of 100. And anything less than that, you'd have to question whether it was really uh, working that well or the patient would even notice the change. So those are the types of outcomes that are, are mostly with, with pain studies. But on the other hand, most people would be familiar with something like, does it work, does it not? So a yeah. yes or a no answer. So that's what we call a dichotomous outcome. And and, and those are, are a bit easier to interpret because the event either did or did not happen. And um, so we look for statistical significance first, which means we can rely on that result as being fairly true or as true as best the clinical trial is designed but then we look further than that and I find that's the part that a lot of things or critical appraisal uh, is is relying on is like taking that statistical significance and putting a clinical relevance to it so yes it made that change in the outcome but is it important to the patient is it worth it to the patient considering that there'll also be harms so so it's, it's a benefit-risk that we assess and uh, look at the outcomes very carefully like that. Yeah, and helping the patient make that decision as well. Yeah. Um, so the other thing that I think is so important is that, you know, we often think that the most important measurement is actually pain when, in fact, other measurements in terms of function and uh, mobility, quality of life uh, can be also very important. But yeah, so I, I just, I always think it's, we're so, you know, we often think everything is, is focused pain, pain, pain scales, you know, decrease in pain, but in fact, other measurements can sometimes be so much more important. 
So I think it's 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 how we evaluate that information. Let's uh, have a look at the the first case, and this is a great case that uh, that Edie uh, Baxter provided to us, and and uh, I call this the COVID casualty because we do see this now because of these masks that are so important to protect people around us as well as ourselves have some hazards related to them, primarily around steaming up glasses, right? <laughs> so you can't yeah. see where you're going. So in this particular case, uh, there are obviously some characteristics of this this patient. Uh, so uh, she's 60-year-old female. She's got type 2 diabetes, and she's got hypertension. So she's obviously on some treatment for that, including metformin and an ARB, which is the, um, uh, oh my God, isn't that awful? Uh, the receptor blockade. Yeah, angiotensin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had a brain fart there for a sec. <laughs> So she's walking and she her mask fogs up and uh, so she trips and rolls her ankle and lands hard on her left flank. So she goes to the emergency department, gets a few x-rays and she's got a non-displaced fracture of uh, one of her toes, which is on the little the small toe. We call that the proximal fifth metatarsal. So the nice thing about that particular fracture, she doesn't need a cast. So that's nice. But she is going to have pain, which you would expect. But she's also got some rib contusions, which are really uncomfortable and just take her breath away. So when you're managing these cases, there are a number of challenges. And just to remind uh, our listeners, even though we're going to focus more on the pharmacotherapy with Pam, is that there are some other aspects of how we would approach this particular case that become important as well. And that's looking at things like pain protective behaviors that we've talked about before and how this poor woman is is probably going to end up in a little bit of a pain tuck and how that sort of sometimes can contribute to her pain and suffering and how we need to help her move a bit better and feeling safe when she's moving. Uh, But we've talked about that in previous podcasts. So I'm going to let you take over here, Pam, and just uh, talk about some of the data and the literature that you were able to find. Well, in this particular case, we are concerned about uh, the fact that she has hypertension. There are other factors with diabetes as well, but for the purpose of uh, her acute pain control, uh, that is is one that we focused on and in uh, the academic detailing material, we're doing a whole section on the risks of NSAIDs. Um, So in in this particular case, we wanted to know, okay, this is an acute situation. She won't be using NSAIDs for very long, probably. Uh, We don't anticipate that anyway. And so we wanted to know, well, what is the effect of NSAIDs on short-term use in acute pain? And interestingly enough, there is no relevant information that we could find to support it with evidence. So that's a caveat of the the evidence that we do have. But we do have some studies that are longer, uh, over six weeks and over four months and so on. So looking at that, we can see that probably giving an NSAID to this patient will increase her blood pressure. Um, And then we, like, because there's a meta-analysis that we looked at that looked at COX-2 inhibitors, so like the Celebrex and the Celecoxibs were included in that. And and they did show an increase in, in blood pressure by about 45%, which mm-hmm. even though that sounds like a lot, it's probably a very small amount. So that's why we want to go on to see some actual numbers. So in another uh, sub-study of another trial called the Precision Trial, we looked at that uh, and they found that there was really not a lot of difference in terms of actual numbers between celecoxib, ibuprofen, and naproxen. 
although uh, celecoxib uh, was significantly different than ibuprofen. So ibuprofen increased the blood pressure by about four millimeters of mercury. And this is like the 24 hour systolic blood pressure. Mm. Um, naproxen somewhat less than that, um, between 1.5 and two. And celecoxib actually decreased it by just a little bit, but the range of it was very similar to the other two NSAIDs. So that showed us that, you know, well, it, it doesn't seem to be that much really of an increase. I mean, the clinical relevance would be patient specific, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's another study that came out in 2013 that looked at actually the effects of people who were on antihypertensive therapy. So that's a more relevant question to the lady that we have. And it was in people that were on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB or another drug called al Alaskarin. But the one we're interested in is the ARB. And so in that case, in patients that were given two weeks of a, an NSAID such as naproxen at about 500 milligrams a day, the increase in the uh, blood pressure was about seven over five. So again, that's a little higher. And the mechanism of action makes sense in terms of how an ARB works in the kidneys and so on. And and the fact that NSAIDs also will prevent sodium excretion and increase volume and that sort of thing. So it's not an unanticipated that they do increase the blood pressure to some degree. And then I guess going back to all of our choosing wisely statements mm -hmm. and, and what the product monographs for these drugs are saying, um, choosing wisely actually says that NSAIDs aren't advised in those using um sorry, those with hypertension, and they do increase blood pressure and decrease antihypertensive medication effectiveness. So, um, and then the monograph's a little less than that in that we know it can, can worsen hypertension, giving an NSAID, and so monitoring is recommended uh, while taking an NSAID on an antihypertensive drug. And again, this applies to more, I guess, a bit of a longer term use. So perhaps intermittent use or short term use may have less of an effect. And, and I think if you're concerned about any patient, you'd want to monitor. Yeah. And I think it's so I think that's important because often what we'll find in the emergency department, people will come in and the question they always have is, well, can I use it if, you know, just intermittently rather than regular? And often I'll say yes, but, you know, keep an eye on the blood pressure for sure. Um, especially if they find that tool effective, but every patient is going to be different. Um, so it's it's so individual specific, but we also have to kind of weigh the risk for that patient, for sure. And one other thing I'll just mention that I'll, there is a study that showed if you were on an ARB plus a diuretic yes. and then added the NSAID to that, then that's considered, they, they dubbed this the triple whammy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there was, you know, increased risk of actually acute kidney injury. Yes. So uh, any type of injury where the patient might not be hydrating as well, yeah. or you know, become hypovolemic, then you'll want to make sure, uh, you know, say, perhaps make sure you're not taking in too much salt during this time and keep your water intake good. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. that triple threat is something to be aware of. Actually, I worked last night in the eMERGE and we had a case very specific to this. And uh, so, uh, and unfortunately, this person got into some bit of trouble. So it was related to the, uh, he was on an ARB uh, and uh, diuretic plus using some NSAIDs. So it, we, oh, we do see that fairly, fairly frequently in clinical practice, believe it or not, especially if they get, a, if they, if the person is not a great water drinker, 
or they get something like, you know, diarrhea, anything that's going to take away from their vascular status or their fluid, uh, fluid balance. Um, it's, it's a terrible thing. And the other area that we see it sometimes, people that are being prepped for like colonoscopies or other types of testing where they're kept NPO, but they're also given things to empty out the bowel and they're still taking these medications, uh, they can run into some serious trouble. So I've had a few cases where that's happened as well. So I think we need to be more aware um, of these, uh, not not just, you know, using it for, for for with the NSAID piece, but also what happens when patients are not able to replace fluid or we're actually taking away fluid. So it's always a concern. Yeah, yes, hmm. yeah. So there's a, a, an interesting uh, theory around, or you hear out there as well, Pam, that uh, that uh, NSAIDs or uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories actually can impact fracture healing. So you guys looked at that as well. Yes, we did because uh, one of the sections we're, we're including in academic detailing is on post-operative use of uh, and of well, pain relief for post-operative indications. And um, so this has come up many times, it seems, over the yeah. years as to whether there is an effect. And, and technically there could be because NSAIDs do decrease prostaglandins and therefore can delay the healing. But we didn't find any very high quality, robust uh, evidence at all. And there are variable results shown in meta-analysis. Some show that there might be an, an effect and others don't. And so in 2019, there was a meta-analysis uh, that came out and that's a, a term that we use for something that combines a lot of different studies. So there were 16 studies in this one. They were both randomized, so variable um, types of studies as well, both randomized control trials and case controls and so, so on. Um, and in a subgroup analysis of this particular one, your long bone fractures did show a delay uh, of union. And um, But then they did another subgroup analysis that looked at dose and duration. And they are reporting that there was no increased risk with the low dose uh, use of NSAIDs and for less than two weeks duration. So right now, our current evidence from human trials, because initial uh, evidence was actually in animals, uh, we're suggesting that short-term low-dose NSAID could be safe uh, for pain relief and fracture care. And the other point we want to make is that a lot of times we're looking at alternatives to opioids uh, post-operatively uh, to decrease the use of those. So if, if an NSAID can be used safely, then it may be a good option. Is there any, did you find in the evidence, Pam, any benefit or any relationship to the type of NSAID? So when I'm thinking of sort of uh, uh, the ibuprofen versus uh, ketolorac, you know, anything like that, where there sort of a, a hierarchy in terms of least harmful versus most harmful or? We didn't find that. And like I say, there were variable uh, types of studies included and whenever you get into observational studies being included, sometimes it's difficult to pin down specific NSAIDs because they group them all together. But in the particular subgroup analysis that I mentioned about the low dose, uh, diclofenac was included in domethacin and ketorolac, probably some of the more higher risk yeah. <laughs> uh, NSAIDs that, yeah. that potentially we wouldn't use uh, at all. Right. Uh, but I don't know if that makes a difference on, on fracture healing itself because all the NSAIDs decrease prostaglandins and yeah. yeah it's interesting so when you talk about low NSAID dose and short duration but 
when I look at Ketolorac, they're talking about 120 milligrams in 24 hours. Is that is that correct? Yeah, daily doses. Sheesh, yeah. that just seems like a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I find that interesting. I'm, yeah. I'm going to throw something at you because this is something that comes up a lot too. If if because uh, we see this all the time in the emergency room where people will come in with instructions that they've been sort of instructed to alternate between acetaminophen and an NSAID. What do you what what is your uh, what has the literature said or have you ever explored that piece or is there harm in that? Are we talking specifically for fracture healing or for uh, well, any? Well, it, it can be. Yeah, well, you see it sometimes for fracture, but you also see it mostly for musculoskeletal injuries, or yeah. we even see it for you know the management of fever. So I'm yeah. not sure if um, um, that's something. And, and I don't want to put you on the spot. I'm just curious, but because that is a practice that you see fairly frequently uh, in the emergency yeah. room where patients have been given those instructions. Yes, and I think, although I didn't do the evidence uh, searching for post-operative, but I think there'll be more evidence when you um, look into that part of our academic detailing. So I think the the multimodal approach mm-hmm. uh, is supported, uh, definitely, and uh, can decrease the risk of either the effects of NSAIDs or of acetaminophen. Mm. So if you can keep either one of those doses a bit lower uh, and you and I think there is evidence for effectiveness so the patient should see a benefit in it and reduce their adverse effects mm-hmm. but like I say you might uh, might want to ask Natasha that in the next yeah. section yeah so the other <laughs> thing that I think it's important is to remind ourselves what our goals are as well so our goal is to make pain more tolerable so that patients can move and so if we can f- use the lowest dose possible, I think that's that's really important as well. And yeah. my experience has been is that many patients don't want to be using pharmacotherapy. Um, you have to kind of work. Every patient is going to be different. But my response to them always is that, you know, medication is there as a tool. I mean, if the pain is shutting them down and they're not moving, that's that's worse for them than if we mm-hmm. try and use some either non-pharmacological or pharmacological. So sometimes that gets the patient on side is that our goal is really to try and help the make the pain more tolerable so that we can get you moving, especially a post-op patient, obviously, mm-hmm. all the complications mm-hmm. related to their surgery. For so, sure. <laughs> so what kind of, uh, so we, we've talked about oral uh, NSAIDs, but how about topicals, especially in, in acute musculoskeletal injuries? Right. Well, these are very interesting to me because I started looking at topical NSAIDs years ago when we had our first ones come out for, you know, knee. Uh, osteoarthritis of the knee or whatever and at that time we didn't have great evidence but it certainly has evolved over the years and most recently in 2020 we've had um, a lot of research done and uh, in uh, by large agencies in the United States and Canada and um, so they put out guidelines for the American College of Physicians um, and they're based on this huge uh, amount of work done for a network meta-analysis. So um, they looked at a a large number of trials and a large number of patients over like, you know, 32,000, 33,000 people. And um, they had a mixture of the types of acute pain that they were looking at for topical NSAIDs. So it could be musculoskeletal injury, sprains, whiplash, mm-hmm. muscle strains, that sort of thing. And, and but, you know, I, I don't know if a lot of them were surgical, but um, they were, you know, probably the typical ones that you would see every day that were more related to the ones that I've already mentioned. So um, they looked at pain reduction within two hours. And interestingly enough, topical NSAIDs 
came out on top of the scale, uh, even more so than oral NSAIDs. Mm -hmm. And so in their guidelines, they are suggesting that uh, treatment of patients with acute pain, and this is non-low back musculoskeletal injuries, I might point out. Uh, And they suggest you can use it with or without menthol uh, as a first line therapy. Interesting. For, yeah. yeah, reducing symptoms, pain, improving pain, and improving physical function. Yeah. So yeah. we often, especially with the, because uh, you know we talk about counter irritants. Uh, so when I think about heat, when I think about cold, you know, what are they actually doing at the tissue level? Probably not a lot. But what happens is that the brain is more focusing on the sensation. And I think about the menthol. That okay. smell is something that distracts the brain, right? So yeah. whether or not that's, this is the complexity of the pain experience eh, and how our, our nervous system works. But so when I think about those smells, um, I just think about how the brain, and it's a very comforting, most people, I find it, a, I love the smell of the, some of the topical, some mm-hmm. people don't, so they probably would make their pain worse, but <laughs> yes. so there's a whole yeah. other area. And this, this actually came out as well in Dr. Bussi's work, he, the presentation mm-hmm. that he had as well. So, which, oh yeah, actually you've, you've, um, is coming from him as well. So yes, that's quite interesting. Yeah. So that that yeah. is something that uh, we can obviously, uh, and and in terms of looking at harms, what because we know that there can be absorption, obviously. So we have to be careful in terms of the quantity of topical that patients are putting on themselves. Do you have any any yeah. any suggestions around there? Yeah. Well, I mean, in the typical use, the the gel that's available commercially, um, um, the Voltaire and ML gel. And again, I'm sorry to use, uh, but that is the common one that's available over the counter and, and so on. But in your typical application, if you follow the, the recommendations, the overall absorption is fairly low uh, in comparison to oral. So we think it's around 6% of, okay. of an oral tablet. Um, now, some of these were compared against diclofenac at about 150 milligrams because that used to be the the top, the high daily dose that you could give of diclofenac, but um, yeah, so so six percent of that. But the thing is, if you do have someone who's going to use it in more than one place or more than one joint or you know a wide surface area of, of the skin, then um, I've read some studies where it could be up to twenty percent yeah. uh, absorption of oral. So that's a significant and. And it doesn't exclude the possibility of systemic effects as well. Yeah, and it depends on how, like you said, how much people, I mean, there have been cases of uh, solicitate t- uh, toxicity in topical mm-hmm. use, in, mm-hmm. uh, but often patients are using a huge amount. Yes. Uh, so there have been some cases. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you were talking a bit about the absorption there too, and I was just looking at that. Um, yeah. So there's some other important points that you, you bring out as well in, in the talk, if you want to talk about that too, uh, Pam, in terms of absorption and things like that. Yeah, like uh, uh, anytime you put anything on your skin, the, if it's put uh, under an occlusive dressing, so, you know, I mean, if you put saran wrap on top yeah. or, you know, any type of airtight occlusive dressing, you're going to increase the absorption. So there's a rec- you know, recommendation not to use those bandages over top. Of course, you're going to have the side effects typically related to a topical are going to be those from the app where the application site is. So it could be burning or a hot, cold sensation or some sort of skin inflammation or irritation, that sort of thing. So uh, those are the things that you can watch for. Yeah. So the other thing I always think about is things like saunas and stuff like that. If people are putting 
you know, these uh, topicals on them. And if they go into a, a sauna, they're probably okay, right? So in terms of a hot environment, what, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I didn't, didn't see anything specifically about um, a sauna or any type of thing like that. But at the same time, you might be sweating and, mm. you know, that process may actually remove some of the drug away from the site of action. Um, but, uh, yeah, well, you don't have the information on that. But heat generally does increase yeah. absorption through the skin. So it's a general good, you know, sort of policy to follow. Because, I mean, Not- people that are, are living with musculoskeletal things, they spend a lot of time in hot environments <laughs> like saunas or hot okay. water bottles or... It's true. <laughs> so it'd be interesting to explore that, actually. I yeah. just Because uh, I know, obviously, the, the concern, it's incredible to me how many patients uh, who are wearing patches, like analgesic patches, who don't realize getting into a sauna can be problematic around absorption. Right. Right. So Because be... those are also occlusive at the same time, those patches. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. So mm. anyway, it's interesting. I'm just thinking out of my top of my head here thinking about the different situations that I've seen and emerge and how we would instruct patients for sure. Oh, I'll have to look into that one. <laughs> so what if what if people decide to yeah, I think it'd be really interesting because it is a practical uh, thing. So I think it's something that now mind you, there probably isn't a ton of evidence out there. But it's a very, it's a it's not an uncommon thing to see patients do actually. What about the, the taking of an oral anti inflammatory plus using the topical? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, that's a really good question because when we looked into this, we actually found that it's an official contraindication in the product monograph to use both oral and topical NSAIDs together. And this could be simply because they haven't studied them very well to, to know the, the side effects and the harms. Um, but we did go to a, a clinical expert on this and, and um, she suggested that they do sometimes combine them off-label if the benefits outweigh the risks and with appropriate monitoring. In any time you're doing something like this, you're always looking at total NSAID available in the body and the specific risks that could be associated with that, whether it be cardiovascular, gastrointestinal or renal, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, um, just, Yeah. yeah. It is so individual specific, isn't it? And we mm-hmm. patients now are so complex because they're older. They're they're often multiple different therapies, and especially uh, when you're looking at comorbidities like diabetes, uh, there's so many different therapies out there now that uh, can interact and create all kinds of challenges for sure. We're going to end it there and pick it up next week talking about acute mechanical back pain, and this is a really important topic that Pam will dive into uh, regarding our treatments. And it will be really surprising to most of us what kinds of therapies can actually be effective for acute mechanical back pain. So we'll end it there and we'll pick it up again next week. This is uh, Dr. Maureen Allen just signing off for now. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.